we are infatuated with personal satisfaction. And the world of food service and commerce knows it. If we go out to dinner, at the end of the meal, we get the check, right? Somewhere, uh, either on the check, or we get asked by the person who waited on us. They ask, are you satisfied with your meal? And if you are satisfied, just how satisfied? Give us a number between 1 and 10. If we purchase something, the manufacturer or the store that we purchased it from, at some point we'll typically ask, are you satisfied with the product? We'd like to be asked because we are infatuated with being satisfied. We want satisfaction. And when we find satisfaction in a place or a thing, we, we chase after it, right? We chase it. We chase that satisfaction that comes after a great meal or, or a great event or a satisfying product. The use of it anyway. And this chase for earthly satisfaction at a deeper level, far deeper than just a meal or a product, is in part driving the sexual revolution. It's what's driving the porn industry. It's what's driving the world of wealth and health and prosperity and materialism. It's what's driving tourism. It's what's driving American politics. It's what's driving even the majority of pop evangelicalism. I mean, people want, we want nothing more than to be satisfied now. But here's the funny thing about satisfaction. It's fleeting. Right? It's fleeting. Earthly satisfaction is like an elusive shadow. It's temporary. It's here for a moment, and then it's gone. A great meal comes, we're deeply satisfied, and then a handful of hours later, we're left, and we're we're wondering, can we be satisfied again? We get hungry again. Our, our product breaks. A new product then comes out. <laughs> a bigger and better experience is, is promised and becomes available. And we are left, inevitably, dissatisfied until the next fleeting moment of satisfaction comes. And so, in a world of shadow satisfaction, in a world of fleeting satisfaction, what or who can truly satisfy, not only for a moment, but for eternity? Well, please turn with me in your Bible to the book of John. The Gospel according to John it is the fourth book in the New Testament. We're going to be diving into chapter 6 today. If you do not have a Bible, you can find one in a pew near you, and you can find the Gospel according to John on page 886, 886. And if you are here this morning and you're new to reading the Bible, we're so glad that you're here. Um, just to kind of give you a little bit of lay of the land, the large numbers in the Bible are the, the chapter numbers. The small numbers are the verse numbers. And we will all be helped to keep our Bibles open to John chapter 6 this morning. Please follow along as I just read the first 21 verses of this chapter. First 21 verses. 
This is the best part of the sermon right here. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this, is to, he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he gave thanks, he distributed them to them, to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they, were, or when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land in which they were going. This is God's word to the church. Thanks be to God. Let's say that together. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless the hearing and applying of his word this morning. Lord, we ask that you would speak to us and feed us from heaven, from and through your word. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would turn the lights on in our hearts and minds. We know that unless you give eyes to see and ears to hear, we are spiritually blind and deaf. And so we ask that you would cause the distractions of this week or even this morning to fall to the wayside, and that you would cause us to behold Jesus in all of his beauty, cause us to behold Jesus, the King of glory. We pray all of this in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, just to catch us up, in the first five chapters of the gospel according to John thus far, we have beheld who? Jesus. On every page, in every verse, we've been beholding him, and we have seen over and over and over again that what was anticipated in the Old Testament has been inaugurated, if not already, not yet, in and through Jesus. 
And on every page of John thus far, we have seen the truth that Jesus is the promised word and light bringer, the lamb rescuer, the sovereign relationship initiator, the great sign worker, the great kingdom inaugurator, the new heart maker, the Messiah redeemer, the savior healer of his people. And today, in in chapter 6, we discover that Jesus is the greater prophet and provider that is far greater than any and all that have come before him. And that's only the point here of chapter 6. Here's the, the big idea. Jesus is the greater prophet and the only one who can truly satisfy our souls. Jesus is the greater prophet and the only one that can truly satisfy our souls. We see this truth here in this chapter through three movements. In movement one, we see the provision from Jesus, seen in the signs that the prophet has come there in verses 1 through 21. Then we see in movement two, the, the satisfaction of Jesus that the greater prophet alone can bring in verses 22 to 59. And then movement three, we see reactions to Jesus here in verses 60 to 71. So that's the big idea and the outline for our time together. Let's get going. Here we go. And just a heads up, point one and two will be longer than the third. All right, so let's dive in. Movement one, provision from Jesus, as we just read here in verses one through 21. Well, if we just backtrack for a moment to the end of chapter 5, we see that Jesus had just had another major confrontation with the religious leaders of the day, and things are heating up. And so he withdraws. He goes into the wilderness. He heads across the Sea of Galilee, which for reference is in the ballpark size of like Crater Lake. And we read verse 2 that there's a large crowd following him, and they're not following him because of his saving message, as we read here. They are following him because of his spectacular miracles, which has been a pattern in John thus far, right? And we read there in verse 3 that Jesus is withdrawn, and he goes up a mountain, and he sits with his disciples, the 12 and, and likely some others. Uh, we're going to come back to that mountain in just a little bit. They're in movement two. Well, further, we read verse 4, that the Passover feast is at hand. And if you remember from last week, this passage falls within chapters 5 to 10, which is called the festival cycle. So John is giving us a marker here. The Passover is at hand. Now, this is the only sign here in verses 1 through 15, the only sign that actually comes up in all of the gospel accounts. But this is the only one. John's is the only one that mentions explicitly that Passover is at hand. We're going to come back to that also in movement two. Well, further, we read verse four that the Passover is is there, and verse five comes, and where we read once again that even though Jesus has withdrawn up a mountain, we see here a common theme of Jesus lifting his eyes and seeing people. We read that he sees a large, hungry, helpless, hopeless crowd coming toward him in the wilderness. And it's in this moment that Jesus tests his disciple Philip. And he asks, hey, where are we going to get bread for all these people? 
and confused and spiritually blurry Philip <laughs> responds, uh, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for them just to get a little bit. What we need to see here is that in the words of Puritan William Bates is that God will always try our faith before he satisfies our sight. And here Jesus tries Philip's faith and, and he fails. Philip essentially says, hey, this is impossible. But Jesus is about to satisfy his sight and reveal that what seems beyond impossible for man is wonderfully and beautifully possible for God. And praise God that we have examples of men like Philip who were literally with Jesus, who saw his signs, who heard all of his sermons, and yet still fail in their faith. Just like you and I. Well, it's at this moment that Andrew, we read here, that Peter's brother brings a boy to Jesus in verse 9. And we should note that just like Andrew brought Peter, his brother, to Jesus back in chapter 1, here we see Andrew bringing a, a boy to Jesus. Andrew is always bringing people to Jesus. May that be our testimony. He brings this boy to him, and he has a, has a kid's meal in his hand. Five small loaves and two small fish. And Jesus, verse 10, has the crowd of 5,000 sit down. Likely the crowd is larger than this because this is, not, this is without the men and women, or women, uh, the women and children mentioned. And he has them sit down, and he then takes this kid's meal, he prays over it, and then he provides for this helpless and hopeless gathering in the wilderness. But he doesn't only provide, he provides in overabundance. It's amazing right here in verse 13 that, we, that they, they pull together 12 baskets full. And that number 12 is significant. But I only have so much time. So I'm going to spend too much time on that today. Well, what, what is the crowd's response to this astonishing sign? Well, they proclaim, verse 14, this is indeed the prophet who is to come. This is him. He's here. Now, we're going to come back to this declaration again a little later in movement too. But see, God's people were waiting for the one that Deuteronomy 18 spoke of, the, the greater prophet. And so they believed this to be Jesus. And they, verse 15, seek to make him king by force. Did you notice that? But Jesus withdraws once again to the mountain. But this day is far from over. The disciples uh, cross the sea. And you can imagine the scene, right? Evening has come, it's, it's cold, it's dark. A storm comes, the wind is up on the Sea of Galilee. And it's in the midst of this windy storm that Jesus comes to them walking on the waves. And the disciples are terrified, right? I mean, you can imagine, wouldn't you be? They're terrified. We read in another gospel account that they think he's a ghost. But he speaks up in the storm and he says, It is I. Do not be afraid. And they take him into the boat, and immediately they arrive at the shore. Oh, church, from this amazing meal in the first section of this, of this passage to, to this wave-walking event, here we behold that Jesus is the one that provides in ways that far exceed our expectations, and that Jesus is the only one who can come to us and provide comfort and peace. And he alone is worthy of our trust. And Christian, there, there are two interlinked 
takeaways for us here. First, Jesus provides for his people. Jesus provides. It may not be the way I want. It may not be the way that you want. But Jesus will always provide for his people. And he'll do so in his time, in accordance with his will, and in his way, and not our own. And even when we can't see it clearly, when we can't see his provision clearly, we can so often see it later, right? Kind of in hindsight. Playing on a quote from my favorite of the old Puritans, John Flavel. The provision of God, like the providence of God, is most often best read like a Hebrew word, backwards. And so even when we can't see him providing, or we don't know how he will provide. We can trust him just like we trust the sun will rise today as it did yesterday and it will, Lord willing, tomorrow. Oh, God will provide for our joy in his glory. The second takeaway from these verses is that Christ provides spiritual comfort and care for his people. Did you, did you notice that? Jesus comes on the waves and he brings peace through his word and through his presence. Peace through his word and his presence in the eye of the storm. And this is not a mystery for us. We're either in a storm now in our lives or we're heading into a storm or we're coming out of a storm. What we need to hear and see from Jesus here is that he invites and he, he comes to us and he invites us to, to come all who are weary and heavy laden and he will give us rest and he will give us peace for his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And we can remember these words and we can rely on these words and we can rest in these words when we are doubting God's provision or experiencing abundant fear. And we can take those words to the threshold of heaven. Well, at the end of the day, these signs, what we need to see, reveal the glory of Christ and that he alone is sufficient, perfectly sufficient in his provision for his people. This is a, this is a material reality as we've seen here with the bread and also a spiritual reality as we've seen in the peace that he brings to the disciples. And he is our truly sufficient provider, that's what we see here, but he is also our truly sufficient satisfier. That's what we see in movement 2 in, in verses 22 through 59. That's what we see in this movement to the satisfaction of Jesus. Look there with me. Let's read these verses together. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had only been one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has sent his seal, has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? 
Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread but from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe me. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets that they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Well, it's the next day, brothers and sisters. It's a new day, and as we read there in verses 22 to 25, the well-fed wilderness crowd is on a manhunt, right? They're, they're seeking Jesus. And when they find him, a weighty conversation here in verses 26 to 59 ensues. And in this conversation, we find in verses 26 to 32 that this crowd isn't simply following Jesus because of what he has said, but because he has fed them. You've heard the term, follow the money? Well, these folks are following the food. Jesus' food truck just rolled in. But Jesus wants them to take their eyes off the physical, off physical food, and to set their eyes and their taste buds on the spiritual food that is not from man, but that comes from God. The bread that comes from heaven. The true bread that brings true life, as it says here that can only come 
from and through the one foretold in, in Daniel 7, who is the Son of Man. Now, we should notice in verse 28 that they hear Jesus and they do two things. First, they rightly connect what just happened, this meal, with this manna meal that happened back in the Old Testament, right, under Moses' leadership and his, under his care. That's the first thing. But second, they want to know, they've got to know, what work do we got to do to get this bread? What work? What do I got to do to have this life-giving manna from God? See, caught up in a religion of works righteousness. They want to know, like so many today, and so there's a caution for us here. They want to know, what work must we do to merit eternal life? Where can I get the food, Jesus? I want it. Oh, but what separates Jesus and Christianity from the world's religion and this, this religion that we see here of works righteousness and what we see even amongst some professing Christians is that there's nothing we can do to merit eternal life. Nothing. There is nothing that we can do to give ourselves spiritual life and vitality. There's nothing we can do to raise ourselves up to life today and on the last day. There's a repeated theme here in newness of life. Oh, indeed, the Christian's heart song, brothers and sisters, is and has always been nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Simply to the work of Jesus I cling. Jesus must do the work, and he has done the work of salvation for his people today, and he will complete that work on the last day when he returns. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, after hearing Jesus' words and recognizing that they can't work for the spiritual food and that God must provide it, the crowd rightfully declares, well, you got to give us this bread. Not just now, but always give us the bread. And Jesus declares in his response, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, but whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Oh, brothers and sisters, behold Jesus, the bread of life, the only one who can satisfy our souls eternally. Well, this is the first of the seven I am statements from Jesus in John. And this declaration is so pregnant with meaning. It's amazing. So pregnant. So what is Jesus saying here? And how is, is the author, John, uh, wanting us to, to connect all of this, Right? Well, first and foremost here, he wants us to connect. John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has written these words so that we might connect the ministry of Moses to the ministry of Jesus. So let's trace seven connections in this chapter. Are you with me? All right. Seven connections. Earlier in this this chapter, we learned that a large crowd was following Jesus into the wilderness. Well, a large crowd also followed the prophet Moses into the wilderness, right? We read that this large crowd is following Jesus because of the signs that he, is do, what he was doing. Well, a large crowd of God's people followed Moses into the wilderness after the ten signs, the ten plagues against Egypt. Third, Jesus and his disciples go up a mountain in the wilderness. Well, Moses and Joshua went up a mountain, Mount Sinai in the wilderness, and what, what did they receive? Ten words, ten commandments from God. Fourth, John notes that this amazing meal happened at Passover. Now, what is the Passover? It's a celebration of Exodus. 
when God's people were redeemed and delivered under Moses' care from Egypt. Fifth, then Jesus walks on the water (laughs) to meet and to comfort and to calm his disciples in a windy storm, a feat so much greater, so much greater than Moses leading God's people through the Red Sea after God part the waves with the wind of his breath. Oh, here Jesus is walking on top of the waves. Coincidence? Oh, no. Sixth, Jesus says, I am, in the Greek, ego eimi, which is actually redundant. (laughs) It literally means I am, I am. This is intentional. He says, I am, do not be afraid to the disciples, right, in the boat there in verse 20. And he says, I am the bread of life, here in verse 35. This is just like when God said to Moses through the burning bush, I am who I am. Seventh, here Jesus says that he is the manna from heaven, the eternal bread of life. A greater bread than the bread that God provided through Moses in the wilderness. That was temporary and left the people of Israel unsatisfied. Oh, All of these connections show that that Jesus is the promised and greater prophet, that he is the greater Moses that has come to bring a new exodus for his people, his church made up of Jew and Gentile through his person and work. That is what John wants us to see here, and that he alone, the true bread of life, can truly satisfy unsatisfied souls eternally. That is what we need to see here. Do you see that? Isn't that amazing? God's word is amazing. Christ, oh, Christ is the greater prophet, and ultimately, we also need to see here that he didn't simply come to give us bread. He came to be our bread through his life and his death and his resurrection. And here's where the gospel comes in. For over 2,000 years ago, Jesus walked on this earth, and he lived a perfect life a life that we couldn't live. And then he was crucified in a Roman cross. He he died a death that you and I deserved. But then three days later, he got up from the dead, conquering sin and death. And in the death and resurrection of Jesus, he has brought eternal life and satisfaction to all who repent of their sin, who turn away from their sin and feed on him by faith and receive salvation through him alone. And if you are here today and you have questions about this, I'd love to talk with you after the service. I'll be standing at the door. Or you can find another elder here at HFBC. Or you can look around the room and find another Christian here who's smiling as I'm talking about Jesus' work. We would all love to talk with you about this good news of the gospel that alone can satisfy unsatisfied souls. This gospel alone that can save sinners like you and I. But if you are a Christian here today, what we need to see is that this gospel of grace and of life, this true satisfaction, this is the gospel of Jesus that is our spiritual food, not just one day, but every day of our lives. And it's this food that that continues to feed us and keeps us preserved in him like a sweet Marionberry jam that is preserved in a sealed cur jar 
Those who believe in the gospel and belong to God, as we've read here in these verses, and have been drawn by his electing love, have been sealed by him. All these realities go hand in hand for John. Those who have been drawn by his electing love are, as it says in verses 37 to 41, given to the Son in accordance with the Father's will and sovereignly elected and kept by God eternally. And this is heavy doctrine, brothers and sisters. This is heavy doctrine. This this is the kind of doctrine that has split denominations, has split friendships, has split families. This is heavy. But Christian, if you are reading carefully, Do you know what this means? It means that once we've, as it says in verses 52 to 58, once we've eaten of the satisfying bread of Christ and drank of his blood by faith, by the way, I do not believe that Jesus is talking about the Lord's Supper here. That hasn't happened yet. He's speaking about salvation through him, the bread of life. If you have eaten of Christ by faith, and if we have been given life and salvation by pure sovereign grace, it means that as Christ promises here in these verses, that you will never be cast out. It means that you will never be lost. It means that you will never go spiritually hungry again. It means that you will never truly die. Though you will die physically, you will not die eternally. Why? Well, not because of any striving on our part, but because of the work of Jesus. Amen? Amen. So let's make no mistake. This I am declaration and these electing promises that we read, these assurances that we read here in Christ are not meant to be debated or disputed. They are meant to be delighted in, brothers and sisters. Alas, even here in this passage, what do the people do? They dispute. (laughs) They debate. They grumble. There are mixed reactions to Jesus' words here. These claims that Jesus has made about himself have brought two kind of polarizing reactions. That's what we see in verses 60 to 71. So look there with me now, 60 to 71. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life, and the flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he was one of the twelve and going to betray him. 
Well, you've likely watched a film or read a book where, where the lead character draws a line in the sand. And that line clarifies like who is with him or her or who is against him or her. And thus far in the chapter, Christ's signs and his claims have drawn a line. And sometimes we lose sight of this fact that, yes, Jesus was loving. Yes, he was compassionate. Yes, he was loving and caring beyond compare. But you also see that Jesus was a controversialist, right? What he said created controversy. He was exclusive. The things that he said, the things that he did had had a point on them. And that point drew a line. And here it's a line between those who don't eat the bread of life and and perish eternally and those who eat the bread of life and live eternally. A line between those who who don't believe and those who believe. And in verses 60 through 66, we see this, the reaction of unbelief, that many of the disciples, those in the multitude, heard what Jesus was saying and they said, this is hard, who can listen to this? And Jesus, knowing that they were grumbling about his words, that he responds and he says, well, if you take offense to this, oh, you're certainly going to take offense. You're certainly going to have a problem with when, when, I, when I ascend, when the Son of Man ascends, speaking of himself, and I go back into heaven where, where I came from. And Jesus goes on, my words are spirit and life. If you hear them and respond in belief, you will have life. But if you don't, it proves that you are spiritually dead. For the flesh is of no help at all. So we read there in verse 63. And your reaction ultimately proves that you have not been given life by the Holy Spirit and you have not fed on me by faith. Now, instead of being cut to the heart, instead of being convicted of sin, what, what do they do? Verse 66, they turn their backs. They walk away. They abandon and betray Jesus. They trade earthly satisfaction for true, eternal satisfaction. They trade the love of Jesus for the lies of the world. They trade the narrow gate for an open road, the easy road. And those that walked away foreshadowed Judas. That's kind of what John is saying here. The, the disciple who was, as the Puritan Thomas Goodwin says, who, who, quote, heard all of Jesus' sermons, and yet in time proved himself to be outside of Christ's people, and was, as, as Jesus says here, a betraying devil, in verses 70 to 71. What we need to grasp here, brothers and sisters, is that these folks that walked away in word and action like, Je- like Judas were never a part of Christ to begin with. They were there simply for a meal, maybe some fellowship, an entertaining attraction. So they walked away from Jesus, or some some call it today, they, they deconstructed. Have you heard that term? Their faith deconstructed. And here's the thing about walking away from Jesus. Many who walk away then and now, they do so in private long before they do publicly. And so, and so just a note here, as, as a church, we should be a place where we can discuss 
have conversation about the, the claims of Jesus. This should be a place where faith can be, can be displayed and, and, and grown and where questions aren't just shut down. This is a place where we ought to guard one another, to protect one another from the schemes of the world, the flesh, and the enemy of our souls. It takes the whole church to do this work. It takes the whole church to do this work of the church. Now, I know that many, many of you, myself included, have had friends and family who have walked away from the faith over the years. And I, I know that we've shared some of the grief and sorrow of that. But here's the good news. As long as there's breath in the lungs of our friends and families and coworkers and neighbors that don't know Jesus, there's still hope. And so let me encourage you to pray. Pray for the salvation of those around us. Pray for opportunities to seek them and, and to share the gospel with them. Don't assume that they've already heard it, especially in this Christmas season. Don't assume, but press in. Pray and take the opportunity to share Jesus with them because salvation is beyond our pay grade. Like, we can't save ourselves. We can't save others. That's, that's God's work. But we can proclaim that work to a lost and dying world. We can give the gospel to our, our neighbors, our coworkers that don't know Jesus this, this season. Well, we see here also that it's not just unbelief. We also see another reaction here. Did you notice the, the contrast? There's another reaction here, and it's, it's, it's one of belief. In response to these other disciples walking away, Jesus says to the chosen disciples, right, that question, hey, did I, didn't I choose you? He says in verse 67, do you want to go away as well? I don't know about you, but I can hear the firm and yet gentle tone in Christ's words here. He is asking them and us, oh, are you going to abandon me too? And it's here where Peter reacts with a far greater reaction than those, of those that have walked away. He, he says, verse 68, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have and we have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. What faith, what belief is this here in this profession from Peter? Peter has seen the wondrous signs. He has heard the sermons. He has seen people walk away in unbelief. He has seen Jesus almost be taken to be king by force. And he makes this profession here, hallelujah, all I have is you. All we have is you. There is nowhere else for me to go. There is nowhere else for me to turn. There is nowhere else for spiritual provision and eternal satisfaction. There is only Jesus. That's Peter's profession. May that be ours as well. This question should be regularly on our lips. Where else can I, where, where else can we go? For this is the ongoing question of a true and faithful disciple. This is the question of a Christian one saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. This is the question we, we, are, we are pulled to self-justify, when, we when we're pulled to seek 
salvation through other people and satisfaction to other people and things. This is the question that a faithful, a faithful Christian asks. Where else can I go? When the world, the flesh, and the enemy of our souls is, is attacking us, this is the faithful question. Where else can we go? When the circumstances of this life are turned upside down, this is where the Christian asks, where else can I go? When the storms of, of life are tossing us to and fro, and we're living in fear, the Christian asks, where else can we go? When we're overcome with anxiety or grief or loss or overcome by just fear of a familial or marital or work struggle, the Christian asked, asks, where else can we go? When real questions and doubts roll over our hearts and minds about the goodness of God, and we wonder if we have the, the strength, if we wonder if our faith has the strength to persevere, the Christian asks, where else can I go? Where else can we go? Oh, brother, sister, there is nowhere but Jesus. For salvation, first and foremost, but also for true comfort and peace and rest. For true provision and eternal satisfaction can only come from and through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. There is nowhere else where we can go for certainty in the midst of uncertainty. For rest in the midst of unrest. For stability in the midst of instability. For satisfaction in seasons of dissatisfaction. For spiritual food from His Word when we're in spiritual famine or drought. Oh, church, all we have is Jesus. There's nowhere else to go. And so with that, on our hearts and in our, in our minds today, we should return to that question that I asked back at the beginning of our time together. In a dissatisfied world of shadow satisfaction, of fleeting satisfaction, what or who can truly satisfy us? Not just temporarily, but eternally. Only Jesus. The greater prophet and the one who is bread of life for the spiritually dead and hungry. Only Jesus the only one who can truly satisfy. Let's pray. Let's take a moment to, to confess all the ways that we have sought satisfaction outside of Jesus in our lives. Oh, Lord, we, we pray with Augustine so many centuries ago that you, O oh Lord, have made us and our hearts are restless until we rest in you. And so, Lord, we confess that our hearts are restless and often dissatisfied. And so, Lord, we pray that you would satisfy us. And so, Lord, we thank you and we praise you for satisfying us through the gospel of your son, Jesus, through his life and his death and his resurrection. And so, Lord, we, we pray that you would continue to give us what we have not 
and teach us what we know not and make us what we are not for our joy and ultimately for your glory. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.